I'm Tor, and I'm here to share secrets. Today, I'm sharing secrets with Dan Held, who works at Kraken on their growth team. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about growth on this episode. I have a bit of a growth background myself, but Dan understands growth very intuitively and why these growth principles are so intuitive to the blockchain space, but also to the growth of Bitcoin itself. He's also going to share some of what he believes to be Satoshi's secrets about how Bitcoin was created and released into the world. And we'll talk a little bit about why this time might really be different with the Bitcoin bull run, looking back in time previously at some of the other cycles. I was really excited to get to talk to Dan. He's a prolific content creator, a great speaker, and a great thinker. So I hope you benefit from his wisdom as much as I did. Without any further introduction, here is... Dan Held. Dan, thank you so much for agreeing to jump on and share some secrets with me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about some of this stuff. Well, thanks for having me. I was uh, really thrilled that I could join today. And, uh, you know, it's been a, been a while, 24 hours. But yeah, I'm, on privacy, I'm, you know, it's a really fun topic and there's a lot of ground to cover. So I was, was happy to come on and share my perspective. Sweet. Well, before we get into your perspective, I think we should answer one basic question for people, which is, who are you? They may not know exactly who you are. I know exactly who you are. They may not understand how big your audience even is on some of these topics. Um, but as somebody who's kind of followed your writing and worked for a while, it's really exciting to be able to talk. So let, let's start with who you are. If you're showing up to a dinner party, let's say these days, how are you introducing yourself and, and, and how are you going to introduce yourself to our audience today? I, I wish I was going to more dinner parties, but we've got COVID. Unfortunately. <laughs> fair, fair <laughs> I, enough. Uh, use your, use I, your imagination. I mean, you're, you're getting me triggered. I, I would love to go to a dinner party and hang out with friends and have some bottles of wine. Um, but yeah, who I am. So I've been in crypto for eight years. Um, I've been at five different companies. I've sold two. My first company I sold to blockchain.com and I came on board there as the first product manager. Uh, then later in my career, worked at a few other crypto companies, also worked at um, Uber, where I worked on writer growth led by Andrew Chen and the uh, growth marketing team. Left there, came back to crypto and started Interchange, and we got acquired by Kraken. <clears throat> and so I've been at Kraken since mid-2019, and I first started off on the BD team, but then went back to my roots, which is a growth background, so growth product, growth marketing. So I stood up the growth team at Kraken. Uh, what a growth team does at Kraken is we acquire new uh, traders efficiently. So we look across different marketing channels uh, for, uh, via organic or paid methods, take those to .kraken.com or the app or Play Store and convert them in an efficient manner. Um, so that's my work life. My personal side or my personal brand, I'm, I've got you know around 85,000 Twitter followers. Uh, that's my biggest channel. And I talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the only crypto asset that I particularly find interesting. Interesting, And I've written a variety of different topics. I've written on a variety of different topics that uh, cover, you know, why Bitcoin's special, why does it matter, um, why proof of work is fine, why, you know, Bitcoin had, a, had an immaculate conception, all these all these different pieces of Bitcoin that are that I felt were misunderstood, I wrote about them. And I think what people like about my writing is that I, I, I try to explain things very simply. I don't use flowery language. I keep it as simple and clean as possible because my objective is to educate folks on Bitcoin and, and why they should care about Bitcoin and why does it matter and, and how it impacts their life. So 
Yeah, for me, I see myself as, you know, I, I work at Kraken and then when I'm talking to my personal brand, I take that Kraken hat off and I just want to make sure that whenever Bitcoin succeeds, I can look back upon my experience and go, I helped get hundreds of thousands, millions or tens of millions of people to get into Bitcoin. And I think that's sort of like my life's mission. Well, there's that growth mindset and there's that adoption mindset, right? Like it really does come down to users at the end of the day, in Uber's case, riders or whatever else. I guess this is something that uh, we have in common. I, I Before I got full-time into the crypto space, I was on the growth team at Snapchat. And that's another one of those like oh, hundreds wow. of millions of, well, it was a weird time to be there, to be sure. Uh, it was right as Instagram was launching their own competitor in product to Snapchat. And they were trying to figure out whether that was going to be a growth threat. The spoiler alert, of course, is that it was. Um, but I was, I remember reading a lot of Andrew Chen's blog posts then uh, before he got pulled into Uber, um, writing a lot on growth principles. And I found it really, really fascinating. And so that's very cool that you actually got to work on that team in person. That was probably a really exciting experience. Yeah. yeah well, it, it's pretty wild. I don't encounter many growth people in the crypto world. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the other growth person who always comes to mind in the crypto world, and it's fun to say this to you, uh, is that Anthony Pompliano was a growth guy yeah. at Facebook and Snapchat. So we yeah, and people, all go ahead. People wonder why he was so successful in the social media presence because <laughs> he's a growth guy. Like, yeah. And, and I've tried to tell the other Bitcoiners, I'm like, hey, look, you guys have great messages to deliver think about it from a growth mindset, you could deliver it to even more people. And then they threw, they threw rocks at me because they didn't like me for saying that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, that what, what's really surprising is how poorly I've done, given that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, it's no surprise that he's been successful. And honestly, it's no surprise you've been successful. But again, a lot of it, I think, comes to, it's not that you know something super secret about how these platforms work so much as you've been producing a lot of content that I think is really resonant for people. You do have this plain English way of explaining very challenging concepts sometimes to grasp about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular, especially if you're not experienced and, and content yeah. is king. And, and you're totally right. It all starts with content. There's no trick or, or hack or anything you can do to get that content in front of folks and have it resonate unless it actually resonates. The content has to be good. It has to deliver a message that people like. Um, and the way I was, you know, before Uber, Uber changed my, the way that I created content. Um, and I was actually one of Andrew Chen's direct reports. So wow, wonderful. You know, on that team, uh, especially on product, product was really, really critical about this. You were forced to write TLDRs, too long didn't reads, on email threads or documents that you were uh, sharing with a large stakeholder group. Mm -hmm. The reason why is you needed to compress the narrative. No, ain't nobody got time for that. This person is managing 100 people. You need to tell them what the hell matters right away. And so you continually had to keep compressing your narrative, more compressed, more compressed, and just making it super efficient. And, and that bled over into my writing where, you know, I... I think it's a shame that teachers in school tell kids they need to write 10 pages. I mean, what if they could do it in one page? You know, you, mm -hmm. that message is then delivered to a wider audience because more people read it. So um, that, that for me, that I think was a really cool experience that I was a takeaway from Uber was just narrative compression, um, which has been a huge help in both um, personal life and work life. Like the ability to communicate what you're doing, why it's important is not only important for like your job, but it's important for it. This is essentially a storytelling exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and that's important for anything in life uh, telling stories with your friends, um, dating, 
know, being able to efficiently communicate and, and wax fun narratives. Um, so yeah, I think storytelling is like a life skill that should be taught in school. And I didn't, I didn't really discover it until a few years ago. That's fascinating. I, I really think there is a strong connection between growth and storytelling, thinking that narratives compound and the cleaner the narrative, the more succinct and the more consistent, the faster it can spread, the faster it can grow. And in, later in our conversation, we can talk a little bit about the Bitcoin narrative and why suddenly we're seeing like, what is it about the narrative of Bitcoin and also about the product value of Bitcoin that's allowed it to not only grow, but be resilient in the face of, you know, 75, 80%, 90% drawdown. So over its, over its storied history, like why is it so resilient? How much of it is the narrative and how much of it is the product? I think that's a, a fascinating conversation to delve into. But before we get there, we should acknowledge that we are recording this on the day that Bitcoin has finally broken a very critical barrier, $20,000 into all-time high territory, clearly reflective of something about uh, the narrative succeeding, something about the product of Bitcoin itself succeeding. And I'm sure a lot of people listening, let, let's start off hot. They probably want to know what happens next, right? Like this is something <laughs> I've been waiting for since 2017 to happen. Uh, the last time we kind of were in this rarefied air. So what's what's different this time than 2017? And what does that mean for where we go from here, in Dan's personal opinion? Totally. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a pretty wild day. It's been hard to get some work done as we've seen them. <laughs> as as uh, the price goes up, you know, metrics start to cook off and personal brand engagement, but also then, you know, then we switching over to the work side. I'm just getting pummeled with different messages based on things we need to start doing. You know, there's this anxiety at Kraken to, and I think at every crypto company to take advantage of the bull run and make sure we're, we're we got everything in place. Oh yeah. Um, you know that, and uh, so when, when I think about this bull run, it's super interesting. I think it's, it's much different than every other bull run before it. In this bull run, we have a macro backdrop with the economy that is very different than every other one. Every other bull run occurred during a larger macro bull run in the larger economy. And now we don't have that. We have a, an incredibly wild moment where, with COVID, how it disrupted global finance and, and introduced all this risk into the system. And this is the moment where Bitcoin can shine. Bitcoin was built as a gold 2.0, and it's been waiting for this moment its entire life. It's what I've been waiting for. When I entered my position by owning Bitcoin in 2012, where I hypothesized that Bitcoin is a gold 2.0, and we are now finally touching upon that premise. So in the macro backdrop, that's really bullish, I think. You know, all the money printing that's going on, all the bailouts just reinforces continually why Bitcoin is valuable. Um, and then when we look at Bitcoin itself on a micro level, we just went through a halving, which means that there's less supply hitting the market. We've got an immense amount more of demand where we have institutional money now, in addition to retail, but retail can buy Bitcoin across a wide variety of different platforms. PayPal, which is pretty wild because I think before, you know, it was a pretty high technical level to go create a Kraken account and learn how an order book, work, how an order book works, et cetera. And what we're seeing now is that the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin is really easy to do across a wide variety of touch points, um, which right. means that more money can flow into Bitcoin. We've got less Bitcoin hitting the market in terms of uh, the Bitcoin halvings. Uh, so where the Bitcoin halving just occurs, so less of the subsidy is hitting per block. 
-hmm. And that, that sets up a really interesting micro environment. So the micro environment of that meeting the macro environment. Um, and then, you know, kind of weaving that all together with Bitcoin being world recognized as a gold 2.0 by institutions. I think this is huge. It's, uh, it's what the, it's the moment I've been waiting for. I, I think a lot of people have been waiting for this moment, not just because they want it to be right, but just because gold does seem like a relic of the thousands of years past before the, you know, this techno industrial age that we're currently living in. Like, it just does seem like a natural evolution where the, the rails for store of value and transfer of value have, have changed so dramatically and so little of our economy seemed to be catching up to it. And suddenly, you know, it's hard to say like, it's hard to say what's driving everything now versus like when we talk about central banks taking an interest in digital currency versus in, like the macro investors like Paul Tudor Jones or whomever else like giving their blessing in essence to Bitcoin as an asset class or whether it's Square and MicroStrategy committing you know, pieces of their treasury, in some cases 100% of their treasury to Bitcoin as a treasury asset. All of these things converging simultaneously, it just seems like we've gotten past maybe this is a growth principle again, we've gotten past a tipping point of sorts, past which it becomes, and here's another popular crypto Twitter word, reflexive. It's a reflexive process by which the narrative now feeds back on itself. And as Bitcoin goes up, its narrative as a digital store of value is, is strengthened because in dollar terms, that's exactly what it's remaining. Do you think we're then now past the tipping point of no return? Are we finally like past some sort of critical narrative tipping point that we can no longer like, no matter what happens to the price from here, we'll have some sort of support above? Or do you think there's still a risk that something dramatic could happen to Bitcoin at this stage where we'll see another uh, like large crypto winter where it's completely written off? Like we saw like a number of times first, first um, you know, 2015, yeah. 2016, and then 2018, 2019. That, that's a really good question. You know, essentially, will this time be the same or will this time be different? Um, I, I think Bitcoin has entered a new era to where you're having the largest institutions in the world recognize its legitimacy. There is no going back from this moment. Um, mm -hmm. Bitcoin, as it increases in value, further legitimizes that opinion. <laughs> and then it continues to climb. And as it continues to climb in price, people become aware of it and then start to buy into it in anticipation of the price going higher, uh, also known as FOMO. Hmm. What's really interesting is that Satoshi hypothesized this is how Bitcoin would gain adoption. And he, he hypothesized this before Bitcoin was worth anything. So Satoshi intimately understood human behavior and human incentives and how human, how the, the greed element of humans could be tapped into to build something good, which is to build Bitcoin. And with, you know, I certainly don't think we're going to see another bear market like we saw in the previous cycles. You know, in the previous cycles, it was largely retail driven with a shaky financial infrastructure. There were no financial instruments. So for example, in this one, we have options, we have lending and borrowing where folks could, instead of selling their Bitcoin, they could borrow dollars against Bitcoin using Bitcoin as collateral. Mm -hmm. And that would enable them never to have to sell. Um, you know, granted, it depends on where you, what your loan to value ratio is, et cetera. But that's a really interesting sort of situation that can occur, right? Where, you know, Bitcoin, um, <laughs> Bitcoin, the supply side, we might not see nearly as many Bitcoin hit the market as we did in previous cycles where the only way to exit Bitcoin was to sell your Bitcoin. 
So now you could borrow against your Bitcoin. You could lend your Bitcoin out and earn interest and live off that interest. Or you could sell like covered calls, which is selling upside on your Bitcoin above a certain price. So Bitcoin is a, you know, I think in, in this market cycle, I think it's going to be very different. We're not going to see this traditional boom bust where it's a, you know, I think we're going to see a boom, but I don't think we're going to see an 80% drop. Um, these are large institutions that hold on for a long time. And as it becomes further legitimized, you know, there's a very real, you know, history doesn't, doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And what I think we could see in this cycle is something more like a super cycle, mm-hmm. where the macro environment and the micro environment are perfectly meet up for Bitcoin to move, you know, not from 10,000 to 200,000, but maybe 10,000 to a million, because it's the whole world flowing into Bitcoin and realizing the value that it brings as all of these different pressures push uh, money into it. You know, for example, like there's negative $18 trillion worth of negatively yielding bonds, you know, like that, that's a huge pressure that could push that money out of negatively yielding bonds into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin I think won't have this cycle where we see an 80% dip. You know, we could very well see something where like it has a super cycle, goes from 10,000 to a million and then stays flat for five years or eight years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or it dips 20%. And then there's like a little mini boom where it goes from 1 million to 1.4 million or something in four years. I don't know what it's going to do, but I just know it's going to be different than every other time before this. I think that's a great summary of it. It's like, this time is different. We can't really say in what way, but it's certainly different. And and the the circumstances in which Bitcoin finds itself are meaningfully different from every other circumstance. The macro environment has materially shifted. The narrative has materially shifted. And the legitimacy, right? The fact that we didn't we didn't used to have this network effect of billionaires validating each other that it was okay to have a small percentage exposure to this digital gold asset. And now it is okay. And just being above that level of legitimacy, you don't need very many billionaires buying into Bitcoin before you hit a you know a sell side crisis. My my prior life before my my growth days, I spent five years as an options trader. So I, I definitely appreciate what you're saying um, about like kind of like we don't know what phase of a super cycle, but like it does seem clear once you get into a supply and demand imbalance where there's consistent demand, but so many re- ways by which exchange supply is decreasing, right? Like if people are constantly not holding their Bitcoin on exchanges, but holding them as, as a long-term asset or maybe uh, leveraging it, right? As collateral for, in other ecosystems, either way, it's just not available for purchase. And when something's not available for purchase and everybody wants it, the price is really wherever wherever you see it converge that day on an exchange. And it could be a, an arbitrarily high number in that event if there really is just no one left to sell. Yeah. No, and another way to think about it is that like 0.1% of the world has spent the time to learn about Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, yeah. a very small percentage of people even give a shit. <laughs> and because of that, you know, when folks talk about like efficient market hypothesis, where information in the market is reflected into the price of an asset, I do believe in EMH at a descriptive level, but not a prescriptive level. So I think it mm-hmm. describes the current price. And by default, it does. Um, if the asset was priced anything differently, then that means that the world and each buyer and seller would have priced it at a different price. Right. Um, but it's not predictive. It doesn't predict what the future price will be. And with Bitcoin, um, we, we can't, the current price predicts the amount of people today that understand it. 
And at each point in the past, it similarly did that as well. Where when it was worth $10, it was only worth $10 because there was very, very few people who even cared enough to learn about it. And as it grew larger and larger, it becomes more priced in is the way to think through it. So, you know, with Bitcoin only having, you know, really uh, the, the mind virus of Bitcoin only infecting 0.1% of the world's population, what happens when that goes to 1% or 10%? You know, so I, I think... I think we can't even grok what that means, you know, because you have like company treasuries, you have all that institutional money, which is a huge portion of all wealth. And we just haven't seen any of that flow into Bitcoin yet until very recently. That's the last like six months. Yeah, isn't that incredible? And I agree with you, like in principle, you know, markets reflect exactly what they say, what you get is what's on the tin. On the other hand, again, drawing on the options background and like options are, are, they're priced in such a way where they're usually like zero or extremely expensive. Like they have to settle into something sometimes. So they're the relative volatility of an, of an option. The price of an option is, is huge. Uh, and they're also relatively illiquid. And you could describe a lot of crypto assets in that way where, you know, maybe a lot of them should be worth zero, but aren't for some reason. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with just like what are future expectations for its for its awareness, for its volatility, for people to understand that asset and for it to be adopted. With Bitcoin, a lot of those questions have been answered. I think there's no question that there will be adoption for Bitcoin, that there will always be liquidity and demand for Bitcoin. And therefore, we find ourselves in a place where it's being rep repriced quite dramatically and quite quickly to reflect that additional certainty that we have today that we didn't have even a year ago. I want to move into then, now that we're talking about uh, what's the future of Bitcoin, I want to move into another main focus that we have on this podcast in particular, which is privacy. And in this case, it's, it's more around financial privacy, because I want to talk about privacy for Bitcoin in particular. Like The way that things work in the legacy financial world is we, in some ways, we have more privacy in the legacy financial world than we do in the crypto world. And in other ways, we have considerably less privacy or less autonomy uh, in the legacy financial world than we do in the in the crypto world. One of my biggest fears is that we're going to end up with crypto assets creating uh, something that could end up being the worst of all worlds, which that's how I described central bank digital currencies, where they're completely uh, you know, tools of surveillance capitalism, not tools of freedom, and certainly not tools of privacy, just strictly tools of surveillance. Uh, that's obviously not what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is something else entirely. But the question remains, like, how private can Bitcoin be? And then also, how private should Bitcoin be? So I figure you, as somebody who I know writes about privacy, thinks about privacy, but also writes about Bitcoin, thinks about Bitcoin, what do you think privacy means to Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin currently private? Should it be more private? There's obviously some trade-offs here. Let's Let's think through that question a little bit, because I think now more than ever, it needs to be asked. Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I'll start with kind of the basics of privacy and then we'll go into Bitcoin and, and everything there. So privacy is a fundamental human right. I think Snowden has some great thoughts on why we, we should be private. You know, it enables us to be able to be alone with our thoughts and to be expressive. You know, otherwise we start to alter the way that we think because we're worried about who's listening and, and how that might negatively impact us. So, you know, privacy, I think, is a core fundamental part of like creativity and allowing humans to flourish as a species is, is allowing creativity to find its way into 
uh, new products and services, um, to not be too afraid to go build something new and bold that breaks the rules a little bit. So privacy, I think, plays really deeply into that. So I believe it's a human rights issue. And my buddy Alex, Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation echoes that same sort of thing. So if you don't follow him on Twitter, I definitely recommend that you do. He's doing, uh, you know, God's work around privacy and using Bitcoin to empower folks across the world. And when it comes to traditional financial privacy versus Bitcoin, yeah, there's an interesting way to think through it. One is that uh, the gold standard, all puns intended, of fungibility, which is the ability for one unit of a currency to be equal to an exact other unit, that is rooted in the sort of sort of like privacy. So fungibility, in essence, equals privacy. Um, at least some folks think that that's what it equals. Um, and that's historically how people have thought about it. But what we see in the real world is that fiat currency is typically the gold standard for fungibility. That's why in all the movies that you see, when drug dealers buy large amounts of drugs, or there's an illegal transaction, it's done with a briefcase of cash. This is because that cash is pretty fungible. However, there are some caveats to that, to where if you buy a car or a house with that cash, you're now on a public registry. And then folks are going to wonder where you get the money from. So there's not really... You know why you might be fungible on a very small level, like you can take that $100 bill and buy some beer or go out to dinner. Deploying that amount of money in a very private way is, is very difficult. Um, remember, there's receipts. There's there, If you bought any digital service, there's a record of that. If you registered on a video camera, you know, so maintaining perfect privacy isn't necessary for fungibility to exist at, I would say, the, the level that we all expect it to, which is like fiat cash. Um, what's interesting about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is perfectly fungible on the base layer. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. You can send that Bitcoin to anyone else and the software can't reject it. So Bitcoin is perfectly fungible and there is no secondary market for tainted Bitcoins. Nowhere in the world can you go buy Bitcoins that are quote unquote dirty because they touched a subjectively illegal transaction somewhere. And that's really cool because that means that like essentially fungibility in Bitcoin has not been broken despite it not having the, you know, the privacy standards of like a fiat cash. So fungibility and privacy while hypothesized to be very much intertwined, isn't, we're, we're seeing it in practice that it doesn't matter as much. Now, in my perfect world, would I want a perfectly private cash? Of course. Um, but with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, this comes at a very, uh, a very delicate trade-off. There's a nuanced conversation to be had between fungibility slash privacy and auditability. So if you have fully private transactions on the base layer, what can occur is that you're not able to audit the money supply. And the genius breakthrough with Bitcoin is the 21 million hard cap, the breakthrough in monetary policy, this, the digital scarcity that it enforces. And if we lose faith in that, then everything else unravels around Bitcoin. Uh, people storing value in it starts to decrease or trust in it starts to decrease. Its ability to resist state level attacks begins to decrease. So it's very critical that we preserve auditability because that is the core underpinning value of what Bitcoin brings. Um, so some folks like the Monero and Zcash community have sacrificed auditability for what they perceive as greater fungibility. 
but they haven't really done that. They've just traded off for greater privacy, but not greater fungibility. Um, you know, like if you have Monero and you go buy a car with Monero, good luck, like not registering that with the state and you get pulled over and they're like, Hey, where'd you get this car from? Right? Like, yeah, it'll work for like a drug transaction or day-to-day -day, like coffee purchases or something like that, a very low value transaction, but nothing large could be transacted. Um, and then even more worrisome is that Monero and Zcash both have had inflation bugs. And Bitcoin as well did back before Bitcoin had value when they were first tweaking around with the protocol, but Zcash and Monero had it when it was basically in full production with value being transacted, which is a much scarier premise. And also because it's so private on layer one, they were, it took a long time to be detected. There's no clean way of fixing the problem too once you detect it. So, you know, I found that to be a really interesting foray into like, okay, you know, there, there's some people's claim that, oh, if Bitcoin was more private, it would be more fungible, but we're not seeing any fungibility problems with Bitcoin. And, and then they also say, oh, well, if Bitcoin is more private, more people would use it. But here's what's really crazy about that. 80% of dark market transactions use Bitcoin, which is wild. I, I, that, that stat blew me away because I was like, no way. Why would you use Bitcoin? I mean, Bitcoin's pretty private if you do coin joins uh, or you do like a lightning transaction. But, you know, if you're not doing that properly, you know, and, and you've got these, uh, if you leave a digital marker that's traceable, you could be in a lot of hot water, right? You're buying something that's illegal or you're selling something that's illegal. And so I think what's, what's wild about this is that it, it shows that the market doesn't value that additional privacy um, very much. Uh, if if these privacy coins like Monero and Zcash truly were what the market wanted, then almost all of these dark market transactions would be in those currencies, but we just don't see that. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So no, there definitely is, because because when I think about it, like you're not far off from some of the things that I'll, I'll talk about myself. So first of all, all the ways in which I agree with you, privacy is a fundamental human right. Absolutely. And, and I think that it comes down to empowerment, it comes down to choice, and it comes down to consent. We, we want, the reason I love Bitcoin more than, more than anything else is just uh, that idea of being self-sovereign, you know, be, being your own bank. That was always extremely appealing to me. And I think a lot of cryptocurrencies work that way, but there's obviously something special about how Bitcoin manifests that. And, and the fact that I know that it will be universally accepted, the fact that, as we said, like, it has somehow preserved a lot of its fungibility without perfect privacy. Um, the, I, I have this conversation a lot. Do we need standalone privacy cryptocurrencies who seem to exist to compete directly with Bitcoin? There's obviously a relationship between, you know, Zcash's total supply and Bitcoin's total supply. There was there was meant to be some sort of connection there, uh, but it exists to to be a private version. And yet, a lot of people who use Zcash do not use the the shielded transactions. So even people who are using privacy cryptocurrencies aren't necessarily using them for their for their privacy features. Something that comes up a lot with us, like for Secret Network, is because we, we, we're not a privacy coin. We're really like a private smart contract platform. So for us, it's more around protecting users, protecting data, uh, for the platform more than it is about like protecting privacy for like the underlying coin. So when people say, are we a privacy coin? I always say no, because we are absolutely not, but you can create privacy coins in, in essence, privacy tokens using the network. So we're always 
kind of focused on this balance between, you know, where in the product protocol stack do these privacy protections need to exist? Do they need to be at that base protocol level or do they need to only exist at the application level? There, I think we do have alignment, but I'm wondering, like, do you think that there are use cases? Maybe, maybe the market's not realizing them, but you personally think there could be use cases for something like Monero. Like, where does Monero have its place in, in this universe? Well, I would have thought it would have had a place in dark market transactions, but evidently it doesn't, <laughs> right? Um, that, that stat shocked me. And Chainalysis did the analysis on that. So feel free to check it out. Um, I believe you. Yeah, that, that stat really shocked me. And, you know, I think if it's not useful for that, then I'm not sure what utility it has. Um, I think that there's a huge, like, if Bitcoin has pretty good privacy, kind of joking here a little bit about PGP, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, if Bitcoin has pretty good privacy with coin joins plus layer two uh, mm-hmm. privacy solutions like Lightning, I think that solves the problem well enough for the market to where it plus Bitcoin's network effect and liquidity to where maybe Monero and Zcash just aren't attractive. Um, Monero and Zcash optimize for one thing and one thing only. That's for privacy. But you have to optimize for everything. You have to optimize for scarcity and auditability. You have to optimize for liquidity and network effect. And Bitcoin has a lot of that. You can't, can't ignore that. And then, you know, so I, I honestly just don't really see like a good place for those two coins long-term given the network effect of Bitcoin plus its ability to be private enough that it, it should, you know, again, I am not a privacy expert I'm not going to go weigh in on like how much more private coin joins or lightning on layer two is versus Monero and Zcash. I know there's a lot of light or there's a lot of like um, privacy geeks out there. And I mean, that as a compliment mm-hmm. privacy geeks who really know this and really grok it super well to where they talk about like, you know, how many validator sets are there or like not validator sets, but like how many other people are you mixing with? And like that, yeah. that's a term of like, you know, entropy. How do you, how do you measure how much change you've introduced to your transactions versus like your original transactions to where they can, you know, it's hard for them to pick apart, you know, who you are. I I just read Samurai. Uh, They had a really interesting analysis over funds that were stolen from um, KuCoin. Yeah. And they analyzed it and man, they were able to pull out like crazy metadata and they used timestamping as these coins went through a variety of different mixers and whatnot. So you know, still, it, it's really tricky to be perfectly private. And mm-hmm. I'm just not sure if that's even like a possible thing to do. Uh, you know, I, right. I mean, if you have a mobile phone, there's no way you're going to be able to hide that you're, you're a crypto person. Because if you've ever checked the price of Bitcoin on your phone, or Monero on your phone, some app somewhere, or the cell phone company, or your, you know, and, and your telco, you know, all that flows through their pipes, and they record that information. You know, if you if your VPN ever disconnected just for a second, you know, and you leaked data, like it's just really hard to be perfectly private, is what I'm trying to say. And if you, if privacy coins impl- in their implementation want to be absolutely private, you know, I know there's a lot of geeks who might get into like the weeds of of how private Monero and Zcash can be given their smaller like mixing set. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd have to be perfectly private in everything. Like, have you ever told any of your friends and family about it? Have you ever Googled the price? If you've ever Googled the price, they know that you're interested in it. Or if you've ever like typed in what is one Bitcoin to a Monero, then they know you might've been trading it. 
Um, and then if, yeah, like it, it just, it's really hard to stay perfectly private. Privacy is expensive. That's, that's definitely something like when I recorded with Jameson Lop, he made the point multiple times about how privacy is a luxury good in the crypto space and outside the crypto space, we've, we've turned it into a luxury good. And there's no, as you're saying, perfect privacy. There's pretty good privacy. There's okay privacy. There's acceptably good privacy. Then, you know, like, but, but there's, there's always a trade-off between privacy and security and performance and usability and fungibility and liquidity. All of these questions are wrapped up in each other. It's easy, of course, to get lost in one narrative or another. And that's why, you know, when I ask people whether they consider themselves privacy advocates or not, uh, some people will die on that hill. Other people are like, well, there's these trade-offs. Or some people will be like, well, I'm a security advocate. You know, like, it's hard to be purely a privacy advocate knowing nothing's perfectly private. But I would also say that nothing is perfectly public. We can't know everything about someone. Like, even if you observe their actions, you can't observe their intentions. You can't necessarily can't necessarily model what will happen next. And that's what makes the future so exciting, is that there is all of this private information that exists with each one of us. And when those things are combined and they interact, like in markets, we don't know the assumptions of other market participants, but when those assumptions collide, you get price movements, you get product adoption. Uh, it's that, that I find to be really exciting as well. And then in that regard, I think private information is critical to commerce, is critical to the growth of economies. And the fact that somebody could have a different opinion than you about the value of Monero or Zcash is what allows a market for Monero or Zcash to exist. If everybody thought like Dan, Bitcoin would already be $10 billion and we'd have no alternative assets necessarily. And I'm, I'm making an extreme example, obviously. I don't, I don't think you necessarily believe that, but I'm just making the point that if we all thought the same about the relative value of privacy or the relative value of fungibility or any of these other attributes, we would see different outcomes. But as it is, somebody somewhere clearly believes that privacy has some value, but not everybody everywhere. And that, that's fair. I think totally, that yeah. is where we are. Yeah, and, and that's what's interesting about markets is that markets reflect, you know, performance or like how it's a reflection of all market information combined with like, is your protocol or product solving a problem for the market? Um, Apple solves a problem very well for the market, and that's why its market capitalization is so high, uh, combined with the subjectivity to how well it is solving that problem. So, the stable coins are stable coins and privacy coins and Bitcoin. It's the same sort of thing. It's the there's a core underlying value of what it does to solve a problem. And then there's the market perception of how well it's solving it. Mm. And uh, that, that's what gives us the price. Yeah, I, I think it's just such an exciting thing to see this entire space emerge in the last decade because it's, it's markets thinking and product thinking and technology and cryptography all rolled into one. And we all have a little piece of that puzzle. You know, there's, I, I'm not as good of a technologist as many others, but I, I know a lot more about markets than some and a lot more about privacy than some. And I feel like I, I'm always sitting here with like a couple corner pieces waiting for somebody to fill in the rest of the puzzle. And every time I talk to somebody like you, I feel like a little bit more gets filled in. So with that said, <laughs> with that said, we're moving into the last part of our conversation, which means I get to ask you my favorite question, which I try to do on every podcast, which is, You've clearly been in the space now for a while and you've worked you know, in tech, but you've also worked full-time now in crypto for, for a good deal of time. And you've had the opportunity to work on a lot of interesting problems. So what is a secret that you know, that you've learned over all these years, 
working in the crypto space and particularly with Bitcoin, now with Kraken, what are some secrets that you've learned that you still think other people really haven't grasped yet? Secrets they deserve to know, but they, they just haven't figured it out yet. What can you share with us? Yeah, so that, that's kind of a fun, fun question to dig in on about like secrets um, that I've discovered. You know, it, it's funny because I ask a similar question to people interviewing on my team, on the growth team. Hmm. And you might find this interesting, uh, which is that I ask them, I'm like, tell me something I don't know about your role that's going to surprise me. Because hmm. I want to I see how far down the rabbit hole you've gone. Like how far, how far have you gone down there to where I want to see somewhere that I've never even considered before. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to Bitcoin, there's a lot of different things that I've kind of stumbled and bumbled as I've continued my journey and on, on like learning and understanding. And, and what, what was interesting too, is when I started to write my articles, part of that was a forcing function to get me to better understand a certain topic like Bitcoin's origin story or proof of work. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, it, you know, for me with your audience, I, I don't know them as well. So I'm going to try to pick a few things that I think might be really insightful. Um, one is that I, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think Bitcoin in terms of the issuance schedule, you know, was a really interesting, a fascinatingly interesting, like lucky guess, I think. Um, like why an exponentially decline? Like why an exponentially decaying curve, right? Like why not? Why not a smooth issuance schedule? And I think there's some reasons uh, from a computer science perspective why it's easier uh, to do uh, having events. But like why a four-year having versus a two-year? You know, I've got a hypothesis around like okay, well, Satoshi knew that companies to be created around these mini boom-bust cycles, which I'm, I'm largely extrapolating here. Um, Satoshi didn't say these things directly, but I think like with his foresight, knowing that there could be supply shocks with halvings could induce market cycles and then having enough time for things to be built and for the human mind to adjust to this new paradigm, four years seems like a good amount of time. It's the time we give politicians in the United States time to make an impact like the president. Mm -hmm. So you know, what if he had done it every six months or every 12 months or every year or every 10 years? So I think it was a combination. And then, so like, you've got like, when would you do halvings? And then also what does the curve look like? Cause the curve could have been a lot flatter, right? Like we could have issued much less than we did in the initial years and maybe had that smoothed out over time to where instead of a, uh, you know, a really sharp, uh, issuance curve maybe is a little flatter, right? Where it issued them a little bit more slowly over time. And so I, Satoshi doesn't really give a ton of insight into why he chose that, but whatever he chose worked, <laughs> which is, which is pretty wild to think about. Um, and I, I just marvel at, at either the, the, either the, the brilliance of it or the just luck of it. Um, you know, I, I certainly think that Satoshi is a human, you know, after all, and, and Satoshi certainly wanted to see if it was going to work in his lifetime. And I think that's probably why he chose that mm-hmm. issue and schedule to work that way is I think he just wanted to see if it was going to work, you know, cause if he made those periods like 10 years, he might be dead by the time Bitcoin actually becomes something. Um, so yeah, I think that was a really fascinating topic that almost no one explores 
And I don't know if there's really any insight to be had there other than it worked. <laughs> um, and then we have uh, Satoshi's planting of Bitcoin during the 2008 financial crisis. And I think this, right. this was, you know, a lot of people know this because they, uh, they've, seen, they've seen the white paper uh, date, you know, October 31st, 2008. And they've also seen, um, you know, the code, uh, the message written to the Bitcoin, the first block in the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think what's really interesting about Satoshi's timing was that, you know, he registered Bitcoin.org in August 2008. So he waited months before, like he was already ready to go and just had his finger kind of hovering over the, the send button. And then another interesting point, I think, is the date. So the year, you know, if Satoshi had Bitcoin ready, did he time the year exactly? Maybe. Did he time the month? For sure. And did he time the day? Absolutely. He must have very carefully thought about the day he would plant Bitcoin. And October 31st is a very unique date. So first of all, it's at the peak of uh, despair in the financial markets. Mm -hmm. Truly, everyone thought the world was going to end in, in, in October 31st, 2008. But Satoshi isn't a Halloween buff. He's not doing it as a joke. I think he did it for, for two reasons, uh, because that date is a very interesting historical date. Um, one is it's, it has to do with Martin Luther. And, um, mm. oh, I forget, I'm blanking out over uh, what he How many for. theses? Yeah. 57, how many? I, I forget. Uh, I'm, I'm, gonna feel, I'm gonna feel so bad now. I'm, I'm Googling it in the I, background, you keep going. I've been up since 6 a.m. because of uh, meetings in the market. So I'm a little little rusty. It was that, and then it's also uh, Halloween. 95. I suck, it's Not, 95 theses. Yeah. <laughs> And, and well, me too. I, I couldn't remember it either. It's a combination of that. Plus, Halloween stems from an ancient Celt, uh, Celtic tradition called Samhain. And it's the celebration of the end of the summer and the beginning of the fall, winter. And so they, they also, the celebration was very intertwined with life and death. And I think Satoshi very poetically meant for Bitcoin to be the representation and death of the old system and the beginning of a new one. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think he chose October 31st, 2008. This is so great. Uh, I love it because sometimes people are like, oh, I learned a secret about, you know, how, how to how to hire or like I learned a secret about how to trade. It's like I like and it's like I feel like with your secrets, you're still more interested in just Bitcoin itself, just in the system and the and the entity behind it, Satoshi, right? Like what was going through the brain or the hive mind of Satoshi when Bitcoin was incepted. And I do think that that, yes, like some of the most interesting secrets, some of the most interesting learnings are definitely contained at the inception of Bitcoin, at the inception of like this, this phase of cryptocurrencies journey versus in our own personal journeys. It's, it's actually a really interesting and refreshing perspective. So I thank you for sharing that. I don't think about those things nearly often enough. I think it's really insightful. Yeah, well, glad you enjoyed. I again, Satoshi did not say that these. <laughs> I am extrapolating, mm -hmm. uh, but Satoshi was very precise with how he planted Bitcoin and how he created it. So, I think both the issuance schedule and this are both precise and calculated, even if he didn't talk about it, because everything else was. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be disingenuous to say that it wasn't calculated. So for me, I am extrapolating, but I'm extrapolating with those um, assumptions in mind. Yeah. Well, to me, it just reinforces really the beauty 
and the opportunity that exists in this space and with Bitcoin in particular. And I've found the conversation to be really fascinating. Uh, I'm sure we could go on for hours more, but in the interest of leaving the listeners hanging, I'll close with just one request, which is that if you have anywhere that people should be following you, following your writing, following your thinking around these topics, where can people go to find some of that stuff and to stay in touch and stay on top of all of these wonderful thoughts? Yeah, so I would recommend if you're on Twitter, uh, I'm Dan Held on Twitter, and that's where I post a lot of my content. That's where typically things go first. Um, I do write a weekly newsletter, and that's Dan, if you search Google search Dan Held Substack, that's my weekly newsletter. And that newsletter is a little bit longer form content where I can talk more intimately and a little just more, you know, I don't have to think about Twitter or YouTube or LinkedIn's engagement algorithms. I just speak from the heart. So if you want, if you liked what you heard here and you kind of want this more just very frank forward conversation, then sign up for the newsletter. And I send that out every Thursday. And so the content hits there first and then eventually I'll tweet about it the next day or day or two after. Amazing. All right. Smash that subscribe button. You heard it here first. Dan, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time for sharing all of your secrets. I thought it was a very insightful conversation. Hopefully our listeners did as well. And I hope that we get a chance to do this again soon. I had a blast. Thanks for having me on. And uh, maybe next time we talk, Bitcoin will be at 50K. Uh, by the time we, I release this, it might be. <laughs> I like it. Even more bullish than I am. We'll see. All right. Thank you, Dan. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you join us at Secret Network and become a part of our community of secret agents around the world who help push for the global adoption of open source privacy-centric technologies. You can learn more about the project at scrt.network, join our chat at chat.scrt.network, or you can find us on Twitter at Secret Network. Thank you for listening. I hope you join me the next time that we share secrets.